friends, welcome back to another episode of Strange Days. Today we're uh, finishing off a conversation that we started last week on the, 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 the next tenant of critical theory, which is lived experience. And uh, joined once again, obviously, by Rich Lundy, and super excited to, to wrap up this discussion. And uh, where we were last week is we were looking at, firstly, what, what is critical theory's claim on lived experience? And in a nutshell, it was that um, people in the oppressed groups have special access to truth and knowledge um, that, um, that, that they should lean on, trust, and, and hold. As, uh, as authoritative um, and other people can't argue, can't question and can't ever really understand that. Um, and what we try to say is, well, in terms of an affirmation, there's, there's some truth in the notion of lived experience has value, absolutely. Um, and you know, we were trying to say, hey, community isn't valuable when it comes to understanding scripture. We all have blind spots, we all have experiences, we all have hidden motives um, that we need each other's perspective on. Um, but it, it, that, you, you, that is predicated on the idea that both sets of lenses are cracked, both white peoples and black peoples, um, uh, men and women, able-bodied and disabled-bodied, uh, all the various facets we can go into here. Um, we all need each other, um, and it's so important that believers really seek to understand, A, the Bible together, but also seek to understand each other. Um, and in order to do that, we can't just simply invalidate people's claims and validate their truth things um, without being able to enter into dialogue, um, without being able to um, critique, understand, mm. listen, um, all the angles. Um, and we start to chat a little bit about the flaws and incompatibilities uh, that this idea of lived experience, at least the way that critical theorists define it, the incompatibilities with Christianity. And we, we looked at a little bit of the concepts of standpoint epistemology and how that's not how the Bible sort of lands at, at truth. Like there mm. is an object of truth that we're trying to reach and, and come to an understanding of and how it's sort of shutting down discussion in the public sphere, um, how... The idea that oppression, uh, according to ide uh, identity, is the ultimate truth mm. um, is, is, is flawed. There are other ultimate truths that we need to hold into that. We can't just pivot everything around that idea. Um, and then we started looking at the, the problems of epistemology, trying to, you know, the acquisition of knowledge and, and how you come to knowledge um, and scripture and, and how the critical theory version of that is just at odds with how you would want to understand the Bible. It's very um, cynical. It always focuses on motivations. If I read a commentary from 500 years ago and it disagrees with, with, with my point of view, I can easily write that person off as homophobic or um, uh, you know, trying to maintain the patriarchy or mm. whatever it might be. It could be, could be anything. Um, and so this all undermines any sort of appeal to scripture. It, it, it removes authority from the Bible and places it um, only in the hands of um, the uh, oppressed identity groups. And um, that's kind of what we chatted about. And Rich, um, we, there was one final thing which we wanted to uh, touch on there as we move into today's episode on um, uh, looking at the flaws of mm. when it comes to relationships and interactions yeah. with people and situations, not just our interpretations of the Bible. Maybe yeah. you want to pick it up from there. Yeah, so when it comes to relationships and uh, understanding how certain groups, uh, more specifically the oppressed groups, have special knowledge and claims to truth that cannot be argued with, much of the discourse that takes place around contemporary issues, oppressor groups are told, you just need to sit down, to shut up, and listen. Mm. And that's what's heard, but there's actually what critical theory would add another verb on there. You need to sit down, shut up, listen, and agree. And so I do believe there's space uh, that, that uh, oppressor groups, just to use the social binary language, yeah. 
need to lean in to listen to try to understand as as we mentioned in the last episode around the lived experience of other people and like we just don't know because we've never been in their shoes how do we love and honor each other unless we seek to understand but what critical theory is saying there's another step in there when you listen to that person's experience and especially their interpretation and the dots that they've connected you need to sit down shut up listen and agree it's so, that's so helpful Rich, because often I've heard, I've seen that and heard that on Facebook and something in I, I'm like torn in two directions when someone says you just need to listen because I fundamentally agree with the yes I agree we need to listen and we need to hear things but something in me has always seen or, or f- maybe I'm being cynical here and I've understood the heart motive but actually what is meant a lot of the time is no listen and agree fully mm. you you're not allowed to question that's it you're not allowed to question you're not allowed to bring in any other yeah. thought and that's and that's where it's it's unhelpful because it shuts down any conversation mm. it shuts mm. down dialogue and um you know we'll we'll chat more about this as we go but um there is the idea of often there's also certain voices that you're told to listen to so if mm. like and we'll, we'll get here but like i know that people would say like you need to listen to black voices but often what's meant there is certain black voices again and we'll, yeah. we'll chat about that now but again it's 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 where i don't want to get into it. it's where the group it's where the group thing overplays the individual experience and right. so your lived experience is not necessarily your personal lived experience but how it's the group lived experience right. that people are sort of conforming to but yeah. i'm jumping the gun let's get into um our last sort of uh topic here on understanding some some flaws which is epistemology and relationships and we got a whole bunch of headings which we'll just talk through of, mm. of where these things, of where critical theory um, hurts Christianity, hurts our, hurts our faith, hurts our, um, our, our communities, because that's what we're talking about now, yeah. our relationships. And the first thing it does is it really does erode togetherness. I think this is your language. Um, but this idea completely erodes togetherness. Um, and, you know, the primary, the primary concern for people who've embraced critical theory is is not appealing to reason or argument or evidence or even scripture. And their primary concern is, is unearthing, as we said, these, these hidden motives of, of their opponents so that um, their claims can be ignored. That, that, mm. That's what happens. And what happens is um, it erodes a sense of being able to say together, you know, we can move forward in addressing this issue. Together, I've got allies and we can, and we can take down this injustice and tackle this issue, which is a very real issue. Um, but what it does is rather than calling people to participate, um, whole groups of people, and I've, you know, I, don't pity me, but I've been on the receiving end of this, uh, you know, where we're told, you've got nothing to say, you've got nothing to bring to this conversation. And actually, we can never really be on the same page um, because we're just so different. We can't be united in our diversity because of that. And therefore, yeah. um, you can never understand. And we can't get on the same page. You just need to shut up and listen to my my story, and it just creates division. It just breeds uh, division. I was thinking of a bunch of passages which which um, not only link to this, but link to stuff that we're going to chat about now. But a bunch of Bible verses which I, I feel just are so helpful in in recognizing that we 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 all need to realize mm. our lenses are, are cracked and, and tinted in some some shape or form, um, and and we need to listen to each other's experiences, not just one way, and be able to have people critique our, yeah. our experiences, um, not the experiences themselves, but as you said last time, our understanding or our interpretation of the experiences. Mm, mm. And so here's a few scriptures that I just thought are so helpful. Um, Proverbs 21, 2, I think Proverbs is so helpful in this yeah. kind of stuff anyways, but 
every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Mm. And the first part is the highlight there is like, man, we're so sure that our way is right from whatever camp we might be in, whatever political camp, whatever side of the spectrum, we're always going to think our own way is right. We're all sinful. We're all cracked. And it's only one who can see clearly is the Lord. Um, First Corinthians, Paul writes, this is huge. Mm. Don't go, um, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, that's, that's, that's when Christ returns, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to the light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And what he's saying is, don't be the judge of motives right now because you can't be. Mm. You're unable, especially with <laughs> dead saints and commentaries. But right now in our interactions with people, we're so tempted. Critical theory makes us assume motives and, mm. and, and try to deconstruct and, and, and figure out people's hidden mo- motives. And Paul says, don't do that. That's judgment of people's motives, yeah. not of their actions. And we can't do that. Wait for God to do that. Um, James, when he's talking about partiality, and he's particularly talking about warning the rich not to be partial to the poor, but the principle can be applied in a multitude of directions. He says, You've, and have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Mm. And I love that because he's saying like, when you start making too many distinctions between people and starting to put up those dividing walls, you then you do that because you, you, you're starting to other people. You're starting yeah. to, to judge people and put evil motives your evil motives are coming through and putting them into other people's hearts mm. and it just it just breeds division. And then Paul again in Corinthians just says, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Right. It's like you can't know the thoughts and the motives of someone else. Yeah. And I think like that's just what I want to drill down on here is is and it's gonna go through this whole this whole passage and chat through lived mm. experience mm. and our relationships here is we're unable to do the very thing that critical theory says we need to do. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. God says you can't do it. Don't do it. It's going to lead you into division. Yeah. Um, so that's that first thing. It really does erode togetherness because it just puts a wedge consistently assuming mm. the worst of people. Um, and then it leads to this thing, and I got this phrase, I think, from James Lindsay of, or someone, uh, competitive victimhood. And mm. um, if we keep holding to this thing, it's going to lead to competitive victimhood. It's, if you have a, a focus on grievances, which is what this does, it's always focusing on the injustice, the problem. Not that injustices don't need to be magnified, which is the pros of all the stuff that we're talking about. But if you're consistently focusing on the grievances, both the macro and the micro grievances, it's going to lead and has led in our culture across the world um, into a rise of victimhood, mm. um, where being a victim is in many ways now a badge of, of, of honor. You want to, admi- you know, um, no one wants to admit now that, that they're in a privileged group. People yeah. are ashamed of their privilege. People want to hide that stuff because obviously if privilege equals oppressor, you don't want to be an oppressor like mm. that. No mm. one wants to be that. And so what it does is um, it, it, it elevates this thing of, of victimhood into sainthood in a sense yeah. like that becomes the thing you actually want to glory in now we're like previous generations used to glory in their achievements used to glory in um in 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 what they've achieved what they've mm. done i mean even if you think of i just think of southern african history you know reading that you think of the great stories of of shaka and mzilikazi breaking away mm. and going up to this is you know the history of my country in zim like mm. going up into um uh, what's now modern day Zimbabwe, but the stories would be told of a great people who conquered people and, and you know, yeah. you know uh, achieved something. And that's quite a, a narrow view of achievement. But I'm just saying those were stories that were gloried in. 
now stories of that nature are not to be gloried in um, mm -hmm. at all because there's an oppressive nature. Part of that is very true, but what it does is it just builds up this thing of, of victimhood. Um, and then someone tells you that, um, let me tell you, I've had such a hard day. And what do we immediately do? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, we, we try to one-up them. We yeah. always try to one-up them in whether, when we're, when we're it's, sharing it's these one things. Downmanship. One downmanship. <laughs> one downmanship. Let me tell you how hard my day was. Yeah. Oh, your kid's not sleeping. Let me tell you how my kid is also not, not eating. Like, like, and we always yeah. have to do this. And what that does is it looks for ways to find victimhood status. And in order to do that, you're always going to have to find a perpetrator or something that's, that, that's put you down. Mm. And so it, it, it just innately leads us to finding reasons to blame each other, to compete in the sort of hierarchy of, 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 of victim status. Yeah. Um, which, ironically, as guys pointed out, in our culture is starting to have a bit of a privileged status. The more victimized you are, there now is a, a sense of privilege in that because yes. there's, there's a saint status like applied to that essentially. Right. So, that's, that's, again, another thing of what it does to our relationships and our combos. Instead of, instead of pointing each other positive, we just point each other negative, basically. Yeah, yeah sure. And, and, you know, an, another way that uh, this impacts on relationships and community is how it overplays group identity and experience. There's people on the in crowd and the out crowd. And so we say, like, identity matters more than ideas. You know, you're saying, oh, Carl, the only reason you're saying is that because you're a dot, 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 yeah. dot, dot, depending on what the topic is, right? Yeah. Until the point that someone's ideas are unpopular, when suddenly their ideas are more important than their identity. And they kind of go from in the crowd to out the crowd. Yes. So you see Kanye West, he's now you know, part of the, the group, he's saying he's black, and because of his other political views, he's yes. now out of that group, he's ex-black. Uh, Peter Thiel is now ex-gay, Jermaine Greer is ex-feminist, J.K. Rowling, who's a lesbian, was uh, cancelled a huge, uh, I encourage you to read up around that, yeah. is now ex-LGBTQ because of her views on transgenderism. Um, she said, made a statement, men who get their periods are not men, and faced a whole lot of backlash and said, you're no so longer much. part of this group, you're ousted, you're out, you're cancelled. And so, uh, you know, there's, if you think about it, you're going, like, people are putting the groups based on these social binary uh, yeah. groupings or categories. And so, but actually, it's quite narrow to think that everybody in that category believes the same things. Totally. But to hold true to critical theory, you kind of, you have to believe that. You have to say you're in this group until the point that you cross this line of believing the saying this or agreeing with that other group, if, in which case you can, you can get tossed out. Yeah. Um, and so this is how there can be a statement that someone is physically black, but not politically black. Interesting dynamic, interesting line that can be crossed there. Um, and there's almost this assumption that because of your ethnicity, you have to agree fully and participate fully in those various causes. And so you can translate that into, into current, you know, or closer to home things. You're saying, oh, of course, if you're black, you believe this. You can't agree with that theologian. You can't agree with this yes. person. You can't agree with this political view because you're black or you're colored or you're white or whatever market that yes. you're looking at. And so what ends up happening is you start treating people based on their group uh, experience, or what group they're in, their lived experience. Um, and that assumes a whole lot, right? It says, oh, because you're black, I need to treat you like this, or I need to have an assumption that dot, dot, dot. Or because you're colored, I need to assume this, I need to assume this. That's judgmental, right? It's wrong. It's just what you're talking about. Like, we're assuming the motives of somebody else before we even... Open, open your mouth. 100%. So before we even get to highly contentious issues, if you're standing shoulder to shoulder, 1.5 meters apart, social distancing, <laughs> in, in, in a church a worship setting, and it's a new person you've never met before, 
Critical theory says you have the right to assume the following motives based on that other person before you even yeah. engage with each other. How difficult is that to overcome that to find true a gospel community? So that's that's one of the other impacts that this has on 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 Christian community. One hundred percent. As you were as you were mentioning that, I was just thinking other examples. If you go look at like um, the U.S. political situation like situation right now and and all the voting things, but um, you know historically. Uh, by huge percentages, um, African Americans have voted for the Democrat Party, and a great example of this is 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 over the last few years and maybe even the last few months, um, African Americans who have come out as conservative or have said, "Hey, I'm voting for Trump," or "I'm voting Republican," or whatever, um, they've received huge backlash because exactly that they're mm. now black bodies, but they're not politically black in yeah. the way it has been defined by the the, the uh, a large group of the culture or at yeah. least specific people holding to this kind of view. Um, and so it's like Candace Owens and a whole bunch of people. I'm not saying you have to agree or disagree or like them or unlike them, but it's a reality. Mm. And um, I was watching an interview with a guy called Rob Smith. He's an African-American man. Uh, he, was in the, he was in the military in some shape or form, um, but he is also gay. Um, but he's switched now and he's voting for Trump and he's quite outspoken about why he's voting for Trump um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, what I found fascinating is in his conversation is he said... Um, yes, it was harder for me to come out as conservative and voting Republican than it was for me to come out as gay. I received much more backlash wow. from my community, at which I've now been ousted from in my, like, at least in his African American circles, um, for his political views. And so mm. he is a black person. He's a black. He's got black skin, but um, his views are have, have been cancelled because he's, yeah. he's no longer a black voice. He's a black mm. body, but he's not a black voice. Yeah. Um, and it's just fascinating, like just seeing that. You know, it's it's. I, I've seen very living examples of this. It's not mm. just like theory, mm. and I found that um, so sure. interesting. But it's true. We what happens is we just we stop looking. I think this is one of the big things for me is we stop looking at people as people. Um, Vadi Barkham, when he talks about this kind of stuff, he's just like he's like we have to be viewing each other as an, as as people, as individual people with unique experiences, unique life things. Just because um, I'm I'm black, he would say, mm. or someone else is black doesn't mean we haven't been privileged in a whole bunch of other ways and vice versa. Like, it's so complicated. Yeah. Yeah, like the way I phrase it is, um, we're not just a composite of immutable characteristics. Mm. By immutable, I mean unchanging. Yeah. Okay? It, it doesn't mean that, Rich, you, you are simply um, a combination of um, the group identity of white, the group identity of male, the group identity of this, because within those identities, your experience is very different to another white male mm. and another um, whatever, like Christian person or whatever it might be. And it's actually like, I would, I would go as far as to say, it's quite unloving to just view someone as a composite of yeah. a bunch of characteristics. I, I, like I, in many ways, I would have said that is the, def the definition of racism back in the day that I would still hold mm. to in many ways to say, because you are this type of person, therefore, I'm gonna just assume all these things about you. Yeah. Because you're black, therefore this. Because you're white, therefore this. I would say that's extremely unloving. It assumes a heck of a mm. lot. It's extremely judgmental. And once again, is wrong in many levels. One of them being um, assuming that because you're a white person, therefore you can't change or you must adopt this yeah. view. And like God's the only person that is unchangeable. Right. Um, we're all in many ways, uh, you know, our character, our, our, personalities and our characters and our views can shift and change mm. and mm. critical theory doesn't allow that yeah um, it overplays as you say that group identity and that group narrative and um, doesn't allow for individual things and those group things are huge you've said before like you don't have a clue what it's like to be a black female in south africa 
So there is a group story which you're not accustomed to, but it doesn't mean that every black female has the exact story. Right. And it doesn't mean that I need to treat every black female exactly the same. Exactly. They're unique individuals with different lived experiences that I need to have a... a, a, a curiosity is not the right word, but I need to lean in and engage yeah. and, 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 and be part be of... Be interested. The, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. And saying, like, I can't treat you just because you're part of this group. It's like, imagine if you arrived at a party and saying, before you come through the door and you talk to anybody of these strangers, just yeah. hand in your CV and we'll mark you on the basic, those different social binaries things. And then we'll yeah. either let you in or out. Yeah. Or I'll treat you basically based on, the, on all of these categories that you fill before you even open your mouth. Yeah. And that's what critical theory is. I mean, it's an extreme example of like the, the implications of holding to lived experience very totally. tightly. Saying, I'm only going to treat you on the basis of what groups you're part of. I'm going to read this book about you, and therefore I don't need to talk to you, <laughs> because I can completely understand you by reading, yes. by reading these views. Right. And that, again, it's that thing we just want to keep saying. It's insufficient. Yeah. Critical theory is insufficient for so many things, including having a conversation and understanding another yeah. human being. It's just insufficient. And what that leads to is it, it has uh, what Vody Barkham calls a chilling effect on conversations. Mm. Or, you know, we could just say it shuts down conversation because people end up not being able to ask questions. If, if your lived experience is, is the authority of truth in your life, therefore, well, I can't question that. I can't, I can't, I can't ask any, I can't explore, I can't query it, I can't ask you for, um, have you thought of another perspective? Mm. Dialogue just gets absolutely shut down. Um, for fear of good reasons. No one wants to be unloving. No one wants to be unkind. No one wants to be unjust or evil. And you yeah. don't want to... The point is not to come to conversations and dismiss someone's conversation immediately saying, like, your lived experience goes out the window. So I understand where people don't want to question for fear of being those things. But actually, that doesn't, that doesn't help anyone. Like, yeah. we, we do want to have conversations. We don't just want to... I have to acknowledge that Kyle has blind spots. And so my interpretation of that fight with Michelle, my wife... Um, needs Mish's perspective on it. I can't just assume mine is right and hers right. is wrong. Mm. And we need conversation. But this just shuts down conversation. As, as we said, it turns into, instead of listen, it turns into shut up, listen, and believe. Which yeah. is, or, or what did you say? Accept. Yes. Which is, which, which is something else entirely. It's unwise. I'd say it's, it's unbiblical. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I've, I've noticed this so much in, in discussions and conversations around issues of diversity um, in, in various contexts. And I've been in some conversations where it's a beautiful range of people and talking about very emotive and difficult things about the experience of racism in different, in different places. And uh, white people were keeping quiet. And uh, someone challenged them and said, why aren't you saying something? They said, no, we, 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 I must keep quiet, using their words. I must keep quiet, I must give the floor to people of color to share their experiences. And in some ways, I'm like, there's something noble around that, that actually yeah. for so long the microphone has been given to one narrative and actually yeah. making sure the microphone goes fully around the circle to use that image is a beautiful thing and a good thing. But there was a massive problem in the context of that conversation in that community is that the people of color ended up believing or drawing a conclusion that these white people don't want to talk about it, that these white people are only here under obligation and they can't wait for us to stop talking because they can just go back to the way things were. Mm. And so because this is always going to be an emotive topic around race, there's no way of avoiding the emotions totally, in that, right? Totally. But the white people are trying to be um, helpful in saying, this is not the time for me to speak, but their silence sent another message that was completely unintentional. The message, uh, message of their silence was, I don't want engagement, I don't want dialogue. And it led to a divisive story being formed in, in people of color's minds that only black people care about race. 
in the context mm. of this example that I'm giving, that was the opposite. Yes. White people cared so much yeah. that they kept quiet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Put, you know, put, a, put a silencer on themselves yeah. and saying, here, this is a place I need to listen. I need to listen. I need to listen. But the white, th these folks had, had heard so many messages of sit down, listen, and believe. They didn't have a voice in that space. And the depth of relationship between people in, these, in this conversation was halted because only one side was talking. And so uh, what I want to say before I go any further is that listening is important mm. and talking is important. Mm. The, the two need to go hand in hand, but the context, the relationships, the tone, the moment, <laughs> the topic, a whole lot of things, right. all are going to influence how you talk and respond. That you're not saying sit down, shut up and believe, but that you're engaging in some way. Now that takes some emotional intelligence and it takes some self-reflection to say like, I'm feeling a bit triggered now, maybe. Some, the way someone said something about yeah. something I've done or haven't done in the past, I'm feeling really heightened at the moment and this is not a good time for me to lean in and <laughs> right. to, to engage. It's to lean in and to listen and then at the right time with the right processing in place, the right kind of things that I'm going to engage with that person. But perhaps now is not the right time. So depending on all of those things, sometimes it might be sit down and shut up and don't say anything. Other times it might be lean in and engage. Now, and the reason why I'm using that word engage quite carefully is because engage could be agree and it could be disagree. It could be grappling with something. Engaging doesn't mean I'm going to automatically disagree with what you're saying because you've said it. Yes. <laughs> but it's saying like, I want to learn more. I, I haven't connected those dots. Help me connect those dots some more. And that's been some of the language that I'm saying like, I just don't see it yet doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. I just don't see it yet. And so sometimes going to people later and recognizing your own mess and sinfulness, the things that people said in those kind of conversations like, oh, wait a minute. Mm. Oh, snap, I've done that. Mm. I've said that. I've given that tone. And I can see their experience, how hurtful that is. Yeah. Oh. And there's this conviction of the Holy Spirit like, I've done wrong. I need to get with God. And times need to go to that person and, and be reconciled. Yes. And um, other times people say things that I'm going, I, I actually disagree. There's some other dots on that dot-to-dot -dot sheet that you're not aware of that need to be connected. And yes. together we need to map out this picture together because our shared understanding is more nuanced, it's more complete yes. than just one experience. Yes. Um, you know, one of the, uh, let me give one of those examples that, that helps me know to lean in and listen some more is I've heard so many times people tell me directly to my face and then I've read in kind of in, in different media is how difficult it is to be black and let me be more general than that, be a person of color living in Cape Town. Now, I, I, you know, people saying the first time I realized I was black was when I came to Cape Town. Mm. Now, as a white person, I don't have a reference point. I've grown up in Cape Town. This is reality for me. Yeah. This is normal for me. I don't have another experience of going there and going, wow, that's so different to other cities in our, in our, in our country. Now, in response to someone sharing their lived experience about difficulties to be black in Cape Town, what is my response to that? When I've hold like, okay, this is the danger of critical theory and going down that line of thinking, what about this and what about this and what mm. is my response? Is my response to say, no, man, you're just exaggerating. You're just being too sensitive. Oh, man, <laughs> how unloving is yeah. that, right? How am I supposed to know that how difficult it is to be black in Cape Town? I don't. I have blind spots, to use that language that you said. I need to learn from the experience of my fellow city dwellers and explore the question, is there some way that I have been contributing towards that? Mm. In what I've said, the way I've said it, the tone I'm using, things I haven't done. Is there something I've done to contribute towards them not feeling like they're at home mm. in this city? And so, so, so in some ways, with critical, what we are pushback against critical theory is don't not listen. 
but listen with, with lenses. And, well, you can't listen with lenses, right? You listen with ears. But listen with headphones. With <laughs> <laughs> but listen in a way that helps to go. What is this person saying? What do I take away? What is about me? What is not about me? How do I grapple them? Mm. And how do I support this person? How do I love this person? This person is likely sharing it not because of you, but mm. sharing it with you. And it's likely a vulnerable moment that they're sharing. Mm. So treasure that as being something that God may be using to shape something in your heart. Now, one of the things that, that someone shared with me a, a little while ago that's been very helpful and very difficult, <laughs> I just have to confess, is that on social media, if you want to have a better understanding of how other people live and understand and, and, and interpret the world, on social media, follow a bunch of people that are unlike you in some way. Some people that, and, and, and just follow them. Just read, just listen, just learn. You don't have to agree. I'm not saying that just because you follow them, you're going thumbs up, I'm gonna like those comments, I'm gonna yes. fully agree with you. No, 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 yes. that's not it. But it will open your eyes to other people's experiences and understanding and interpretation. Mm. So just one example when in, um, with uh, police violence in America, and we've used this example in previous ones, you know, there's, there's different interpretations of the different things going on. Right. And it's a tragedy, no, no, no shadow of a doubt. And then I saw another video of how a police person was treating a white person who was aggressive towards a policeman. And the, and the policeman's response is very different now. And it just showed, uh, in a powerful short clip, the disparity between how police uh, treated black uh, Americans and white Americans. Mm. And I would never have seen that clip if I wasn't following people that were different to me in some political yes. way, some um, ethnicity, sexual orientation, whatever, whatever, whatever it happened to be. I'm like, it's informed my shape. I'm like, wow, I don't see things the same way. Mm. And maybe there's a better way of understanding if we grapple with it together. Again, I don't have to believe. I mm. don't have to agree. Mm. But I do need to listen. So helpful. So helpful, Rich. Um, the next thing is I'm going to hand over to you again here briefly, Rich. But, you know, this thing of critical theory and, and, and this idea of lived experience, it, we chatted on this first one. It... it, it, it Gives people inherent guilt, mm. um, obviously in in, in the uh, privileged oppressor camp, but it also gives people sort of inherent um, innocence um, yeah. when you are in the uh, the the oppressor the the oppressed crew. Um, Rich, what uh, just talked about? Yeah, yeah. So you kind of inferred because you're part of that group, you're guilty, full stop. Yeah, like that's it, and you cannot unguiltify yourself. And yeah. that's a, I've used that word, that clumsy word very deliberately, but you can't get rid of your guilt because yeah. you're part of that group and you can't exit that group. Yeah. So, and so um, the, the converse of that saying, because you are oppressed, you're, you, there's innocence, there's conferred innocence. You can respond in this way, you can say these kind of things with that tone, and it's, it's not judged in the same way. It was not yes. held up to the same standards because that behavior is okay because you're part of an oppressed group. Yes. So when, when a group, if you think about it in, in the South African context, when there's, a, when there's a riot or, excuse me, a protest around a particular cause, that the, um, I don't like the word looting, but some of the damage to public property that can take place during that is, is some people say, that's okay because they are being oppressed and this is them expressing themselves. Right, right. Where if that kind of activity took place by another group or around a different cause, right. you would say, wait a minute, like that's not cool. That's, that's, that's going backwards, et cetera, et cetera. So held yes. up to different things. So conferred guilt or conferred innocence. And this undermines that whole thing of like we stand uh, responsible before one, uh, God one day saying like for our, our actions, not the actions of our group. Yes. Good or bad. Yeah. But actually saying like, did you do this? Did you do that? So w when we see things, a lot of migrant labor in, in, the, in the apartheid years contributed towards fatherlessness. And so some people say, you know, the, the high rate of fatherlessness in, in South Africa is attributed towards 
those social factors. Mm. It's not that person's fault that he's not a present father. Mm. There's because of other forces are being right. at play. Um, but actually, ultimately, that 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 person in this context or this example, that man does have a choice whether to be present or not. Right. And, and how do you deal with that choice? Right. And so there is personal responsibility, uh, and and, that, and that's important to remember that actually, even if you're part of an oppressed group, there is personal responsibility. Yeah. It might be multi-layered and far harder. Mm. Let's be cognizant of that. It might be far yeah. hard, harder to do that in the context that you're in. Yeah. But there is still something known as uh, personal responsibility. So helpful. This links back to what we were talking about last time, whenever it was, that the idea of moral asymmetry. If mm. you're in this group, these things are excusable and if you're not in this group etc yeah and yet as you say god is going to hold us all to account for every killer's word spoken like yeah. whoever you are jesus threw that out blanketly um and it's that thing if you want we need to have empathy and understand the circumstances that lead to things and alleviate circumstances so yeah. that people are able to um have uh, an, an easier time to to you know to mm. to walk in the things that god wants them to yeah and yet at the same time um like people are responsible for their yeah. for their actions exactly mm. that's so so true um i just i don't know where i got this I, I probably heard it from somewhere but um someone just said when 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 the lord gave the, the israelites the law um they were literally a nation of freed slaves so they yeah. had just been an, an, an oppressed people um and they had all the lived experience they would ever need um to not be oppressors uh, themselves um and yet then at Sinai and, and throughout that time, God still gives them the law and tells them how to live and mm. to, um, you know, the, the Jubilee laws and how to not oppress yeah. the sojourn and all these things. And the whole reason was because lived experience doesn't sanctify you. It doesn't make you holy. Yeah. Uh, you, it doesn't give you, Im that doesn't give you imputed righteousness. Mm. Like you need to recognize that you, like you are still a, a, a sinful human being no matter what your lived experience is. Yeah. Um, and that comes down to that thing. If you still need, if in gospel terms, each and every single person needs the righteousness of Christ, yeah. uh, and they and they needs to work that out in their lives. That you mm. know, grow in grow in God's in, in sanctification and and grow into the righteousness that we've been given yeah. By, yeah. by by Jesus because of what He's done on the cross. And so that's a it's a great example from Exodus there that someone someone highlighted, um, or at least from the the Torah. But um, all of this also it it leads to problematizing. Uh, it's a, I've always heard people for the last while talk about like that's problematic, that's problematic, mm. um, and summed up in this concept of problematizing. Um, and essentially, if you think about it, uh, take racism or, or, or any other grievance, um, which are sins, but you, they're, they're now thought of in the same way as sin is, in that it's, as we mentioned earlier, it's infected everything. It's like total yeah. depravity. Um, Racism, for example, take racism as an example. It is everywhere. It is. Uh, it is. It is assumed to be everywhere. Mm. In every. In every fa facet, nothing is not tainted by racism. And it's. And yeah. don't get me wrong. I would say yes to the fact that there, we live in a racialized society, as guys, as people might say. Um, but here's the. Here's the idea is like problematizing then says, cool, we need to scrutinize in extreme detail. And um, that's the critical part of critical theory. And um, we need to look at every tiny detail to find the problem that we know is there. So we, mm. we know, we inherently know that racism is absolutely everywhere. Um, and therefore we're gonna, we're gonna look at every detail and unpack every situation and find the racism there. Yeah. Um, and so the question becomes, we might've mentioned this before, um, the question is no longer, was this event here racist? Mm. 
the question now becomes how did racism manifest in yeah. this event? And that might be um, Robin D'Angelo's um, language, um, but that's essentially what's happening. And, uh, and if you look at it, that, that is totally sort of circular, circular reasoning. It's like if you know something is, know something is there, you've already assumed 100% yeah. you've banked it's there. You can turn anything into, into an example of that. Like, yeah. uh, again, it's, it's, that, it's that motive hunting. Um, you said that, obviously, because of X. This mm. happened. Well, obviously, it's an example of this. Yeah. You can always find the thing. And so little mistakes in, in a conversation, I and mean, we could unpack this for ages, which we probably won't get into, but conversations, mistakes, little interactions, um, if, you know, all of it is interpreted um, mm. through your lived experience yeah. and your assumption that... Um, either sexism or racism or one of the isms along those along that that spectrum um the problem is it's going to literally encourage you to interpret every single interaction with someone in the least charitable way yeah particularly if they're not like you yeah so if 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 you're not like me it's a male or female it's it's a it's a it's black or white well critical theory literally encourages us to interpret every single thing super uncharitably like mm. you did that you must have done that because of x if yeah. racism exists then the only reason that you did that is because racism exists yeah. that that that's how it, it it works essentially which right. is terrible for relationships yeah i mean i remember um in a particularly tense time uh, in in a work history we're going through a very difficult thing in, in our workspace and trying to develop some ground rules for how do we even have these conversations sure. and someone said like kind of ground rule number one is like believe the best believe that other people have the best motives and it was such a great paradigm because when when things get tense and emotional it's so easy to do the opposite to interpret everything through the least tra- this person's only saying yeah. this because dot 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 yeah. dot and that's been a very helpful paradigm for me around saying like ah oh, this person stood on my toes did something i didn't like etc etc I need to believe the best motives. Mm. Um, another book that I've read uh, on crucial conversations, they say like when you're trying to have a high stakes conversation with someone and you're trying to plan like perhaps a, you know, a likely conflict situation, mm-hmm. ask yourself an empathy building question. Why would a sane and rational person behave this way? Hmm. Just for a moment, just put yourself in that other person. Why would this person say this, do this, etc., etc.? And that builds, sometimes it's because of their, they're sinful, they're bad, they're um, uninformed they're this kind of thing right. and that can shape the way you engage with this person right so if, and again from whatever camp or side of the social binary you're having this uh, a conflict situation why would a sane and rational person behave this way or say it in that way or have that tone can really shape your own heart around responding i'm like okay now i have better insight to to lean in but the the, the challenge with like you saying the circular reason this event was racist and let me show you how is that it it can easily make um white leaders feel disempowered maybe that's not the right word mm. or invalid to be able to call black people on their sin um, or colored people or whatever grouping you're wanting to look at um, because they're saying no I'm just going to get accused of trying to maintain my hegemonic power right and, and I've experienced this in, in leadership in the context of Weinberg, which is a richly diverse thing. I've feel, felt certain things that I'm, I feel full authority to go after in terms of like people's sin in the, in the congregation right. from the pulpit. You know, not, not individually pointing at someone individually, yeah. but just like addressing idolatry and sin. Yeah. And then there's some things I'm like, I just feel like I don't, I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah. I mean, I've been told explicitly, you're not allowed to tell me to forgive someone around a race issue. And as white leader, I'm like, what does that mean for me as a leader and the, uh, and the space that I'm in? And I've, of course, approach and context and 
the language and the tone and all of that makes, and the credibility of that makes a difference. But ultimately, we should be able to be free to point some point someone to scripture and saying that's what scripture says not what Richard as white male is saying yeah it's what scripture is saying and point to that and saying you don't need to interpret me saying that through my lens of trying to maintain my hegemonic power um, and so this is what's uh, the, the whole thing about white fragility and 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 the circular reasoning again coming in and saying like if you if I'm told that I'm just trying to maintain my white power and I say no I'm not and you're saying, oh, that just confirms you're trying to maintain your... Yeah. your there it is. There it is, right? Then the it's like, oh, yes, you're right. I am trying to maintain my hegemonic part. Yeah, yeah, there it is. There's the proof. It's known as a Kafka trope. It's like, it's something that you're saying, like, it is what it is. And until you awaken uh, yourself to the fact that you are this, you, you're lost. You, you, there's no, you, you, you're written off. And your denial of it is further proof of your right. guilt of it. Yeah. And so, and that's where coming back to again in the Psalms, like examine my heart, Lord, show me if there's any offensive or grievous way in me. It's like, praise God that His Spirit convicts me of my sin, mm. and praise God that His Word convicts me of my sin. That when I'm reflecting on a moment, I say, oh, that example I used was just unhelpful. Mm. Or, oh man, I messed up there. I, 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 I mean, you go even further. I didn't mess up. I, I sinned there. Mm. Like I need to repent of this. Mm. Um, and other times, it's like. I made a mistake. Mm. I tripped over my feet and I did something. It wasn't intentional. Mm. And of course, it still requires a response mm. and there is responsibility around it. But it is going to shape a little bit around my, my next steps with making right with that person mm. or group of people. I mean, and as you said there, it links back to our thing on scripture earlier. It's like we have to, ha we have, to have the authority not based on our group identity or whatever, but in scripture. So that yeah. when someone calls me I mean, take race, all of that out of it. Just think of, I don't know, any other situation. Like, if someone calls me to forgive for some reason, like, the authority is not in that person telling me that, but it's in the fact that the Bible tells me to do it. Yeah. Like, and, you know, someone titled the podcast the other day, two African-American gentlemen, and they just said, um, I think it was the title of their podcast, Too Woke to Forgive, or something, which wow. is quite helpful. Like, it's very provocative, but, like, their point is, like, you're so woke and you're so, like, as and they're talking to Christians, like, like, that you're so after justice that you also have thrown out the authority of the Bible in terms of certain things, like, mm. in, in, for example, the ability to forgive. Like, God, God calls all of us to do that. There's no exceptions. Yeah. Um, but, again, when you have a moral asymmetry and some people are put in a position of um, conferred innocence, then they don't feel like they need to do that. Um, mm. So mm. it always comes back to this thing of, like, the authority is not in the person or the group. The authority lies in the scriptures. Yeah. And we all want to point ourselves to the scriptures on yeah. all, whoever we are from whatever sort of background. And, you know, someone was saying, um, talking about talking about Paul's, talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And you know, Paul says there, love bears all things and love believes all things. And what Paul's not saying there with believe is like, you know, believe everything to be true at every, wherever you hear it from. But he's saying like, believe the best in situations. You want to be loving, like, believe that... Assume, assume the best and bearing all things is meaning like like you know sometimes absorb when that person did something don't retaliate like mm. like like bear it um kyle kyle says something um in a frustrated tone and in, in instead of you know lashing back and saying something back she can bear it and it can just say kyle's had a long day let me let me believe the best let me think and mm. whatever maybe that's not the best example but it's the situation of like i'm going to I'm not going to smash back here all the time. I'm going to, that's the posture of love. I'm going yeah. to assume the best and I'm going to take something in here, maybe mull over before mm. I immediately mm. come back with a response. Um, I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Um, and it leads on to another thing, which is, I mean, well, I don't know if it leads on to this, but here's another, uh, another problem when it comes to our interactions with each other is that 
straight up lived experience can just be factually incorrect, which is why we're trying to say conversation must not be shut down. We mustn't mm. just tell people, you have to trust me, you have to believe me, you disagree with me, it's because of X, Y, Z. But actually, we all need to recognize that actually we could just be plain wrong. Um, and, um, but you're not allowed to say that. I'm not, yeah, I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> but like, so James Lindsay, for example, had a great, a great example where he was on a plane, um, I think it was like in New York or whatever, on the, on the tarmac, and they haven't taken off yet. And he's in the seat and there's a guy in front of him and they've been grounded um, and haven't taken off for half an hour or whatever it is, and they're waiting to take off, but they've been told, you know, over the intercom, like, please be patient or whatever. And the guy in front of him, he can overhear the conversation, and he keeps saying, the, the, pi the pilot and the air hostesses keep saying that it's the weather, um, but they're lying. Like, I, I'm looking outside, the weather's, weather's not too bad, we can certainly take off, like, these guys definitely have a, a hidden agenda. And he literally keeps saying, like, they've got some, there's something else going on here, I know it, and I don't know what it is, but these guys aren't letting it happen. And um, James Lindsay is sitting behind him in his seat, and he just decides, you know, let me get up my iPhone and pop open the weather app. And on the weather app, he can see this massive storm converging on the <laughs> airport, which is about to hit in yep. about five minutes. And um, from the guy seat in front of him, is he's got a lived experience. He's looking out the window, he can see something, he, yeah. or he can't see something, and he's assuming that there is a hidden agenda going on. One seat behind, James Lindsay actually has the ability to, to, to have a different lived experience that's actually seeing more factual evidence and realizes, oh, no, 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 there's not a hidden agenda. There is a massive storm coming along yeah. here. And, um, and, and that just proves the point that lived experience can be factually incorrect. And uh, bringing it into a more contentious issue like the conversations we're having here, which we just have to wade into, but like if you take race for an example, um, there's the example of Bubba, Bubba Wallace. He's a NASCAR driver and... There was a massive thing which hit up a few months ago, just after the George Floyd, George Floyd riots were happening, um, where Bubba Wallace posted this video and CNN and all the, all the news things threw it across the, across the, the Americas, um, saying there was this racist incident. Bubba Wallace found a noose um, in his garage of his, of his NASCAR vehicle, um, and it was obviously a white supremacist act that people had, had threatened him with a noose, saying, we're going to lynch you, like, boom, there it is. And it went absolutely viral, and everyone was like, "Here's another, here's another incident of like racism in America." That went off instantly. He saw it, he posted it, it went viral. Turns out, two days later, once the story's gone and everyone's like gone for it, turns out that every single garage uh, in the NASCAR like lined up garage there at the racetrack um, had this noose in it, and it wasn't a noose; it was literally hanging from the garage door. It's the string that you use to pull the garage door closed. Obviously, it looks like a tiny noose, although the noose could only hold like a, like a rat's head or whatever if it was used mm -hmm. for a noose. But it wasn't the noose at all. It was a thing to pull down the garage. And all the garage has it, not just his. And they had been installed three years ago. And he would have seen that thing like, mm. <laughs> like, like mm. every time he raced for the last while. Yeah. And it was an incident of like, actually, his lived experience and his interpretation of that event was, was factually incorrect. And yeah. then, obviously... He went in and said, okay, cool, we've, we've figured that out. It wasn't that. Yeah. But it's, it's that thing of, of we can be so quick to jump in and assume things based off our, the lenses which we come from. And you can apply yeah. that to anyone. We all have lenses and we all assume things of people. But that's the problem with critical theories thing. It says, no, lean in and assume the worst and believe the worst. And it's going to justify like, yeah. your interpretation of things. Yeah. And linked to that, I mean, we interpret things through our sense of being a minority. Uh, I'm just using slightly different language because sure. there's different contexts in which you might be a minority and you go to different contexts, you might be a majority. Mm. You know, you go from 
university classroom to the gym to that shopping center to wherever. Like you're going to change whether you're majority or minority in these micro contexts. Mm. Um, and we interpret things through that sense and we connect dots in a way that seem to make sense to us. And again, like we, what we mentioned is like we things that make sense to us and make us feel good about ourselves yeah. and interpret things in light of us being good. So I just use a personal example in common good. It's majority woman. So in that context, as a man, I'm a minority group. Um, and so it's easy for me to interpret things, whether someone else's success or maybe someone was asked to lead this devotion or someone was given that opportunity. You need sure. to interpret that and say, I'm going to interpret that through the lens of me being a minority. Like the only reason mm. she got that was because she is a majority group. Right. And this is a, like a, a fairly simple example. But I, I'm not, in that moment, my brain is not going, I want the most accurate interpretation of events mm. no i instead my brain is telling me i just want a believable interpretation that makes me feel good about myself and in that context i didn't get that opportunity i'm feeling a little bit like but why didn't i get it oh the only reason she got it is because she's majority i'm minority and so um it's and if i got that opportunity mm. it wouldn't be because i'm man or because i'm this or this i'd get that opportunity because of my own hard work right yes right i attribute that uh yes attribution experience. bias yeah That's what the attribution is. bias something good happens to me it's because of me something good happens to somebody else it's because of favoritism or the system or the majority status um, now, the reality is that, that uh, I'm not saying this isn't true. I'm not debunking the fact that favoritism happens and sexism happens and all of this. I'm not debunking that for a second. Um, but it does cause me to, to ask myself the question, is my first conclusion or experience mm. the most accurate? Is my first automatic thought the most accurate interpretation on that event? Mm. And, and many times I pause and I'm saying, actually, there's a couple of other plausible explanations for what's going on here yeah. but I don't have enough information about it but I must just recognize my sinful nature I'm prone to be the least gracious towards others right yeah. that's my sinful nature to be to interpret things through the least gracious way um, and simply by asking myself the question could there be another explanation for this often breathes grace into that conversation or breathes grace into that interaction around wait a minute let me just be a little bit more curious around what else is going on here that I can't see, that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And many times, whether it is a, a string bringing down a, a, um, a, a garage, garage door, door. you're kind of like, is there another plausible explanation for this? Is there enough data on the table? Not data, but is there enough information on the table yeah. that helps me to understand what this really is? Yeah. Uh, because what, what's going on in our minds when we interpret things through that lens, it can be lead to a whole lot of negative and harmful rhetoric or narratives or stories in our head um, if we if we let every single assumption remain an assumption and not be tested and so we just seek wisdom and understanding and not assume that we're right automatically yeah um, and, and this brings to mind something of cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. CBT while we're talking about CRT just just to confuse us a little yeah. bit further but um, many uh, things at the center of cognitive behavioral therapy is saying like there's there's thoughts or beliefs that we have deep within us sometimes we're not even really aware of them and not informed and shaped by many other things but things that we believe that when something happens we have automatic thoughts and automatic responses to what's going on and the role of a therapist who's uh, working with cognitive behavioral therapy is to help under, uh, identify what is harmful thinking and replace it with more accurate or life-giving beliefs so let me use a, a low uh, kind of a low emotive thing of that. If someone is really um, uh, uh, has a phobia around a particular animal, um, 
bats, mice, cockroaches, whatever it happens to be, you know, those kind of things. Like some people have this almost irrational kind of response to it where other mm. people can pick them up and throw them out and it's fine. Mm. Don't talk to me about spiders, right? Or so, snakes for me. <laughs> I'm fine with snakes. So, so somewhere, cognitive behavioral therapy says there's some, there's some kind of belief deep within that when you see a snake, you automatically jump into fight flight mode. You've got to get out of there. You can't even explain the rational thinking that's going yeah. on in your brain, but your body's responding, right? You're yeah. interpreting through these automatic assumptions. And so what they would say, these, these things are cognitive distortions that take place that in our mind that need to be... Um, unraveled and replaced with more accurate information right. or beliefs or thoughts. Um, and that leads to, then to healthier behavior. So what, when, when I hear about critical race here, I hear uh, some of these elements of what tools in the hands of, uh, uh, of cognitive behavioral therapy of understanding how we behave in the way we behave. Right. Uh, one of these thinking tracks or traps or cognitive distortions is jumping to conclusions. It's someone saying, I'm gonna make an assumption about this person or situation with little or no evidence to back it up, right? We recognize that in many areas of life, not just race relations, but I'm jumping to conclusion yeah. that this person is saying this because of dot, dot, dot. That's yeah. jumping to conclusion. What about personalizing? Is it a tendency to automatically attribute the cause to someone's own personal characteristics or actions? So the reason that person said that is because they're attacking me. Mm. You know, they, this person, that preacher said this, and actually the subtext of what they're saying between the words, he's actually picking on me. Yeah, he knows, he knows my story, and this is all aimed at me. Yeah, and he's taking a shot at me, and I'm taking this very personally, right? With little or no evidence to back it up. Externalizing, there's mind reading. There's mind reading is assuming you know what another person is thinking For or sure. expecting. Uh, and in many ways, expecting the other person to know what you're thinking. So expecting another person to say, like, I'm feeling unsafe or I'm Good feeling point. diminished in this environment or I'm feeling um, very real things. Like, I'm not yeah. saying those are bad things. Yeah. But the problem is when you expect the other person to know what you're thinking, you're not telling them that. Yeah. Or even just like in a marriage, like, I'm feeling unloved. Yeah. Like, you should know that. Yeah. Right? You should know that. Uh, what about emotional reasoning is another thinking trap. He's saying making an assumption based on, uh, about, sorry, about an experience based on feelings rather than facts. It felt this way, therefore it must have been that way. That's and of course, in, in today's terms, in today's violence, like the stronger, the more passionate you feel about something, the more true it is. Yeah. Right? And that's, I mean, that's kind of the, one of the big ones that, that this tenant is, is talking about here. It literally said, the things you feel, that must be viewed as authoritative. Yes. And it's what Jonathan Haidt and the guys in Coddling of the American Mind are also saying. This is one of the major problems that they're seeing in... Um, the younger generation yeah. is, is, is a thing of emotional reasoning. Right. And, and you can't dispute someone's feelings, right? There it is. Their experience. Right. It must be, it's true. It's true. It's got to be true. Uh, other thinking traps or cognitive distortions are overgeneralizing. Uh, so you have one or two experiences with this person, and then you can generalize about the rest of their life based on those one or two experiences. That happens to all of us, right? Yeah. Like, please hear me. I'm not aiming this at one group on one side of... CRT or not, yeah. magnifying or minimizing, blowing things out of proportions, making things a catastrophe, or the other side, minimizing, is shrinking something to make it seem like it's less important. Mm. And for those people saying, it's not that bad that I said that comment or made this thing or didn't do this, and they minimize the impact of their behavior on other people. Mm. Um, what about catastrophizing? Is exaggerating the likelihood that something bad will happen or exaggerating how bad it will be? So if someone disagrees with me, I'm going to exaggerate and say, I'm going to be cancelled, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be pushed down, ignored, etc. Or, or they're they're trying to harm me. Yeah. So like um, speech is violence is a huge thing that's happening across 
college yeah. and university campuses. And it's, it's that whole thing. If, if you disagree with me, um, you're trying to harm me. There's yeah. something you, 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 I mean, I suppose a, a, oppression through ideology is a very similar thing. Because you have this idea, you are trying to oppress me. And you yeah. try, like, there's, that's real. And so, you know, when you think about these distortions or traps, they happen so quickly that we don't even notice them, right? Mm. You see the snake, you, you, some of these distortions will come into play and you respond in a certain way. And only kind of later do you reflect back going, wait a minute, what's actually going on here? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to, to not help somebody see that there's a distortion can be quite unloving. Because some of those overgeneralizations saying, oh, all those people are like this. And to leave someone unchallenged with that belief, yeah. oh, you, you, you're letting them go down a path that is unhelpful and yeah. healthy and damaging, perhaps. Um, now, of course, the context of those conversations makes a big difference. The tone of totally. those conversations make a big difference. It doesn't happen online. It yeah. <laughs> happens in a, in a loving, caring relationship. Um, and, and, and in many ways, the finding those faulty thinking or those distortions or those traps um, that... It happens in community with other people. Mm. That's the best place to happen. Saying, you know, you believe or you've jumped to this conclusion that you're unsafe in this community because of this one experience or the experience yeah. of other people that you yeah. generalized across. Yeah. It's like, how do we help our friends, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we help them overcome that overgeneralization? Yeah. Well, it's often through conversation, experience, unpacking it in a way that helps them see, wait a minute. I've been believing this distortion. Yeah. Well, I've got this trap, and I need to shine gospel truth into that. Totally. To be to set, be set free from it. Totally. And as you say, it works in a multitude of. It's, you take the, take any interaction, take anything. I just think of the rise of anxiety in mm. young people. I mean, it is huge. The, I mean, from my personal experience as a student's pastor, just seeing in the three years the amount of people that said I struggle with anxiety, it, it skyrocketed when mm. I was when I was doing it, and the. The stats are in. It's huge. It's an epidemic, yeah. basically. And so we would obviously be wanting to be a community and pastors and, and brothers and sisters who are helping people with their anxiety. And these sorts of, uh, what do you call it, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, they're counseling tools. It's the kind of stuff that Christian yeah. counselors would use. It's like what pastors would use. We did a training session the other day where someone came in and you know, they, were, they were helping us with these similar kinds of tools. I mean, it's, it's, in many ways, it's Christian stuff. Paul says, take every thought captive, mm. like and renew your mind like yeah. that's exactly it like you see not all your thoughts are helpful not all your thoughts are true and um, and part of the rise of anxiety is is the the, the, the lies that people are believing that 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 literally yeah. cause emotional responses in them and and physical responses because of it and if we're not able if we're cut off from being able to actually qu help people question their their assumptions and question their interpretations of things um we're unable to help each other. Yeah. If I'm shut off to you questioning my interpretation on this thing, um, doesn't mean that I have to finally come up to your conclusion, but if we're not able to, able to put, put my interpretations and my experiences on the table and really look at them together, mm. um, that might be an avenue to help my, my anxiety that's completely shut off yeah. because yeah. of that. And so it's out of love, as you say, that we need to be able to, to have these conversations and, and, and believing this tenet of lived experience just short circuits that. And yeah. The last one we'd say before we sort of um, bring into some, some implications and some final things here is, is like empathy becomes impossible. Like if, if it's completely true that, that, that your lived experience cannot be transferred in any shape or form um, to me, it makes empathy absolutely impossible. Yeah. And um, I mean, one of the examples and one of the reasons that 
Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay put together their hoax papers, if you've heard the story. They, they wrote a whole bunch of hoax papers pretending to be um, critical theorists and put a whole bunch of papers through, through to the academy that got published and passed that they personally believed was absolute garbage, but it was critical theory language. But one of the reasons that they did it, I think James Lindsay wrote as a, as a lesbian, feminist, Geograph, geography, some, something like that. Like, and he, he posed as this person and wrote this. His whole point was to be able to say, I am able to some degree to get into the shoes of someone else mm. and write this paper so that you believe it and get it published. Yeah. Um, and, and that's huge. Like, we always want to be saying to people, try get into someone else's shoes. And if it's absolutely impossible to even slip a toe into the shoe, empathy is impossible. Mm. Um, and so it's not to say that you'll ever be able to fully understand someone else's lived experience. Totally, yeah. totally. But man, there's got to be a way where it's not just impossible and you're absolutely blinded mm. by, by, your, by your view or your experience to not be able to empathize. Yeah, yeah. It's what makes us human to, to a large degree. Look, this leads us into like some final things here and hopefully we can um, wrap this up shortly. But Neil Shenvey has some logical implications and maybe we'll just chat high level to this. But it is two claims basically um, that you might hear. And so the first one is, we should never challenge lived experience. Like someone might say that, you know. Mm. I mean, I've said it about myself when we talk about like apologetics, like or, or like sharing your testimony. I say, no, don't just like don't worry about bringing the scripture to this person. Like, just tell them your story. They can't argue with your experience. Yeah. I mean, I've said that when it comes to like trying to share the gospel with people. Um, so like, I have used it, but like, is it true? Like, no. See, people can totally challenge your lived experience, and it's the kind of thing we want to say. Well, yes but no, but yes to. Yeah. Um, and we should totally be open to the fact that our experiences are limited. As we've said, we've got blind spots and all this stuff. But um, like, if you look at claims, and he's got a bunch here. As a woman, I deeply know that society is sexist. As a black man, I know that society is deeply racist. As a lesbian, I know that sexual orientation is fixed from birth, etc., etc., etc. As a Hindu, I know that all religions are paths to the divine. Um, you know, you might, we might be inclined to agree with some, disagree with others, but if we accept the premise that lived experience um, of subordinate groups can never be challenged, then we're going to be forced to accept all of those things. Like, mm. all paths lead to God. My experience tells me that. It's going to put you in a, a predicament as a Christ follower. And so, right. yes, we, we, like, we don't, there's some elements of lived experience which you can't challenge because you haven't lived there and could 100% be true, but you can't just blanket that as something that you can completely hold as a mm. foundational truth, basically. Yeah. Now, the other thing that comes up closely linked to this is how, you know, the language around, we need to liberate our theology from oppressive groups. Uh, and many times I've heard people and Christians say that uh, modern evangelical authors are overwhelmingly white men. Uh, and they say that writers and authors from other cultures denounce will have a unique perspective and we can greatly benefit from it. And, and I, this, this claim, I, there's a lot of that I'm going, yes, there's blind spots. I totally. want to learn from others. That's, that's fantastic. Our, our culture does have blind spots and that will in, impact the way we interpret the Bible. And so we should read authors from outside our culture and outside our time period who can give us alternative perspectives. Yeah. Also, just one, one side comment on that is many times you hear that folk, in South Africa, English is one of the uh, you kind of uh, the lingua franca. What's uh, what's the the term? It, it's like l English is spoken so widely in South Africa sure. in in the media, in Parliament, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And so like we're naturally going to be reading a lot of things that are written by other English writers mm. as their first language. Mm. And so a lot of stuff coming from England and America and Australia and so on. If we happen to find out, so, so to say that all the evangelical writers of this is, is unhelpful or perhaps just jumping to a conclusion that's not that helpful because if you were a Chinese believer, sure. some of the key theologians that you would follow would look different to, to white evangelicals. Right. Um, and so it's some of the, the kind of the product of where we are and the the proliferation of like social media and what we can have access to immediately. And again, who we follow. Like if I say right. all the all the all the all the theologians, all these people I'm following are white pastors, I'm like, well then who am I following? Yes. <laughs> yes like who yes. am I choosing to read, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think there's some there's a caution around a sweeping statement that we should liberate our theology from privileged groups. Because where do you draw the line? You know, should you throw out all white theology for black theology? Right. Right? But which white theology? It's kind of saying all white theology is the same or all black theology is the same. You know, so are we saying, are we going to throw away the white theology of John Piper or Joel Osteen? Should we embrace the black theology of Vody Bochum or Creflo Dollar? Which one are you talking yeah. about, right? Should we throw away Eurocentric creeds of the Reformation and embrace <laughs> any theology as long as it didn't come from white men? Right. Or should we supplement the Bible with other spiritual books by female authors since the biblical writers were all men? You know, if we're hesitant to embrace these ideas, then we should question kind of the premise or the foundation yeah. on this kind of line of thinking on heart rests. Because it sounds noble to say we must liberate our theology from privileged groups. But the underlying assumption that it sits on doesn't hold true in every context. You think about it, rather than trying to find theological beliefs that aren't tainted by privilege, we should be committed to determining which theological beliefs are objectively true mm. because they are taught by Scripture regardless of the person holding the microphone and bringing it. them to us. That's it. And diverse perspectives help us, hopefully, to be able to do that. That's why we yeah. want diverse perspectives. But the idea is not to bring diverse perspectives or fresh perspectives to completely dismantle whatever anyone else yeah. says and whatever this new voice says we must take everything wholesale. Yeah. We're trying to we're trying to help all our lenses get more clearer, basically. Yeah. So helpful, Rich. Well, we're gonna come into land here, and I think what's helpful is we actually have given a lot of pastoral mm. perspective and and some lenses of 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 how we can actually have conversation stuff as we go. But maybe we'll just wrap it up into a few like final statements or you know things we'd like to say in closing. To yeah. you know, if you're a Christ follower listening to this, how can we how do we best move forward and Maybe we'll just take one one out of these, Rich. We mm. we didn't color these uh, in our in our normal colors of who's going to say what here. So it's just one big list. Um, but maybe I'll go first. Is is I mean, Christ calls us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, mm. and that's huge. Yeah. Like, and that's again, I think that's what we when we've been critical of a lot of critical theory stuff. We do what we don't want to lose is the fact of actually we have to listen. Like, we do need to be hearing from voices of people who are marginalized and are experiencing oppression and we we don't just want to immediately write off something because they say this is their experience mm. and we think well because lived experience is a tenet of critical theory and we're skeptical of it therefore disregard this person's view yeah. straight away no we need to be slow to speak quick to listen spend time listening spend time hearing spend time getting in their shoes whatever that looks like yeah um, and um, and having compassion I mean, yeah. you can speak to that if you like but yeah, I mean, when we see Jesus interacting with people on the margins, we see his interactions marked by this beautiful compassion. 
uh, in a sense, whether it's someone suffering from an illness, a, a woman bleeding for 12 years, whether it's someone who's have a family member who is sick or mm. dying, mm. Um, whether it is mm. the looking through the countryside and people are, have a physical need of, they're hungry, and he looks the, across the crowd and says, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved, deeply moved with compassion. Yeah. And it's this beautiful Greek word, which is like, uh, his insides were moved. Mm. Like, I can't pronounce the Greek word, I'm going <laughs> to try. But it's the this, this sense of like, something deep within was moved by the pain of others. Uh, and I think that's something for us today, is when we hear other people's experiences, like, allow it to not move from your head around, like, okay, this view, this thing, and they're using this kind of language from this kind of uh, academia, and you just bring it down to like, let your heart be moved by the pain and the suffering of others. Like, let that be part of your journey in, in engaging with them. So slow to speak, quick to listen, and, and let, let your heart be moved. So helpful. And, and then you said just now, when you're going through those cognitive distortions that come up in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, the one of them was ask yourself, is this, when it comes to a heated moment, conversation, um, not even heated, maybe you look at you, you're having a discussion around something everyone's on the internet, and is, was it this or was it this? Um, you always want to ask, well, is, is what is being put forward here the only plausible explanation? Yeah. And it's that, it's that call for us to, to, to dig and to seek. Un Proverbs talk about seeking understanding, seeking knowledge. There is a, there is a process of investigation. Mm. Um, uh, there is a process of seeking to learn and understand. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's huge. We can't just assume the first testimony we, we, we heard. We can't just assume that our first... Um, uh, reaction to something is to be trusted. Yeah. Like we need to be asking questions like, is this the only plausible explanation? Yeah. yeah. And and the other thing we've got in, in seeking understanding, we're to pursue unity as well. Mm. Now I've had a, a criticism leveled against me. It's like the church is too quick to speak about unity without doing the work or having the hard conversations. Okay. And I feel like fair. that's fair comment. Yeah, fair, you know, so fair. saying we're pursuing unity because the Bible calls us to pursue unity. And they're saying, but we can't pursue unity until we talk through and address and grapple with and find each other on issues A, B, C, and A, B, C. Right. Up to, up to, so many. Um, and so for me, the, the, it's bringing those two things together. In the pursuit of unity, seek understanding. In the seeking of understanding, pursue unity. Mm. And saying, actually, we need to find each other on this because we're going to come at it from different perspectives. Mm. And we need to listen. We need to grapple uh, and pursue unity. Not, not seek to understand so that we can be different on different sides of the camp mm. and say, okay, mm. now I know how to treat you because you're in that camp. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. actually, now, now I have a fresher understanding of who you are. I can better love you and pursue unity in Christ with you. So helpful, Rich. And a proverb that popped up in for, for me was, um, um, the simple one believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. One who is wise is cautious, turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. I think we don't want to be, um, you know, um, just reckless with our words. We want to move towards things. And, yeah. and the other thought I had was, um, uh, when it comes to interactions and it comes to moments of conversation or, or whatever, actions, um, it's linked to that thing of seeking, uh, like, um, are, we, are, we, are we viewing the best of someone or are we viewing the worst of someone? And regardless of that, how are we responding? Um, I just thought of numbers, and it's numbers 35, 20 to 25. Like, you basically just see God having um, two different ways that he approaches sin. He, literally, he does see intentional sin and unintentional sin, and, and he sees them as different. Like, if you willfully do something versus you accidentally doing something, not at all realizing what you're doing... He doesn't hold you to account in the exact same way. Mm. He still holds you to account. 
but there's a there's a very different way that he deals with that and yeah. obviously a more gracious uh, sense that he approaches you in your unintentional sin rather than your intentional sin and i think mm. we should learn something there about the way we approach each other when we do along any lines we're all going to sin against each other like regardless yeah. of take the whole binary thing out like as me as a white male and you as a white male I can sin against you. Mm. And it could be intentional, it could be unintentional, yeah. um, but it would hopefully there would be a response, a difference in your response by the, the which one of those right. was when, when, yeah. I, when I approached you. So yeah. that's helpful. Spot on there. And, and, and picking up on the theme, what, what's uh, these cognitive distortions or thinking traps and, and saying, you know, it actually is unloving to let someone believe something that is factually incorrect. So imagine with that example of Abba Wallace saying, no, we're just gonna, not going to show that these other garages have it, just let him continue believing that someone's out to get him, right. or a group of people are out to get him. Right. Legitimately, there could be. Yes. But like, the, the dot connection between that rope and that uh, conclusion was factually incorrect. Um, you know, to not help point this out, again, tone, uh, context, mm. relationship, trust, all of those things are important to say, like, this isn't like, <laughs> something you just you know throw a brick at him and oh that's an unhelpful image but like really to have a go at him and saying look how rad and yeah. ra wrong and bad you are and yeah. all of these things you said and you're so foolish to connect no 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 so I'd lovingly help someone understand other dots on that page that need to be connected for a fuller picture of what's going on so it's unloving to let someone continue mm. believing things that are that are unhelpful and self-damaging and damaging to the unity and to other parts of the community totally and also, I think, you know, Christ often pushes us even further, as even when something has happened, um, critical theory often and lived experience points us back to that being the ultimate truth that we need to cling to. Mm. And uh, it was Michael Ramsden spoke about, you know, like in, in this culture of victimhood, we all have our sort of chosen trauma. Mm. And that trauma doesn't need to be something that was like not real, but even real. Like we want, we, we, it doesn't have to define us. That's mm. the thing, mm. I think. And like... The gospel says, no, you're not defined by that. You're defined by something else. Hence, you have the power to forgive. You have the power to repent, yeah. whatever that might be. But if we, if we consistently, um, as again, focus on the grievances and focus on our lived experience as truth and our interpretation, all that stuff, it, it, it doesn't allow us to have the conversations, see where we might be wrong, even see where we're wrong, mm. and be able to move past that towards a sense of unity, understanding yeah. all that stuff. Like, we need to be able to grapple. We need to be able to open up conversations and dialogue so yeah. that we as you said the word so we can engage yeah. and move forward so mm. we trust that this has been a helpful conversation it's actually been a longer conversation than we ever thought yeah, we'd yeah. have on this but I think it's been I think it's, there's been a lot unpacked which is great I'm glad we've actually given the time to it so Rich thank you so much again real pleasure honestly for your time uh, as I said yesterday I love the fact that your um, psychology degree meant that I could put one line in this thing and then you sent me photos and textbooks and you brought <laughs> in all your stuff on cognitive behavioral therapy. I thought that was so rad. Um, but thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, just to end on the note of, again, the whole point of what we're doing here is to figure out the best way for us to love God, love people, um, and for us to move toward doing everything that Christ has called us to, to seek justice, to um, uplift the oppressed, um, and to build unity and build community and love and relationships. And so hopefully that's what we've tried to do and look at the ways where maybe there are some things we can take positively from this, but also what are the things that critical theory is going to be unhelpful in, yeah. in, um, in, in helping us to achieve these things. 
So I pray that we all just um, would head back to our Bibles primarily, <laughs> mm. um, first and foremost, as the place of authority, not our own experiences, not our own um, interpretations of, of situations, but actually, God, what do you have for us? What do you say? What do you want for us? And hopefully together in community, bring our different, beautiful, different perspectives and views, um, not to just uphold those by themselves as, as, as truths, but help those shape what is actually God saying, not what, what, um, what, what does this mean to me, but what does this mean? Because what does God have to say to us in, in the passages? Hold on, that's correct. We'll see you next time where we're going to be looking at the final tenet of critical theory, which is social justice, and we'll chat about that then. Cheers. <laughs>